Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Singing about those times when we find ourselves in over our heads in life, not knowing how in the world we can handle it, right? Um, It's at those times that we actually find ourselves probably the most open to learning and growing in our relationship with God. You know, when somebody dies, that changes everything, doesn't it? Someone you know, I mean, in some ways that might be very subtle changes, and sometimes it's very overwhelming changes. Uh, and, and loss doesn't always have to be even somebody dying. We can lose somebody in some other way. And, but our lives, we find, can find ourselves in upheaval. But those are times, if we let them, where we can see God in a way we've never seen him before. And grow in ways that we never would have grown otherwise. And this is the situation that Isaiah found himself in. Uh, The king had just died, and the prophet usually had a pretty close relationship with the king and talked to him. And and now uh, everything is unsettled. Who's going to be king? What's going to happen to the country? Um, You know, back in those days, it wasn't like, not not even like England that has a king but still has a government, right? Back in his day, when the king died, the government sort of died. And so with a lot of upheaval, we don't know what's going to happen. And so this set the stage for what happened to Isaiah. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Really pretty well-known passage of Scripture. might be new to you. And that is page 789 in the Bible that's under the chairs there in front of you. So Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's speaking here. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So God gives Isaiah a vision of himself in the throne room of heaven. Isaiah gets to see this. Uh, God has shown up in his uncertainty and the things that were overwhelming him and shows up. And, and let's, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne as kings would do high and lifted up. The throne was elevated and the train of his robe filled the temple. We know what the train of the robe is. Like it's, it's like the train, the, the bridal gown. Kings would have robes. Now, but it says his robe fills the whole temple. And, and uh, so it's, a, it's a, trying to communicate this idea, this majesty. And, and I don't know what this, this robe was made or a train or if it was just light or I don't know. But Isaiah said, whoa, it fills the whole temple. Verse 2, above it stood seraphim. These are angelic beings, and he describes them here. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And we say, why? Why cover the face? Why cover the feet? What's the deal there? Well, if we go through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, look at these these stories and and some that happens at the end in Revelation when John is seeing what's going on in heaven. Uh, More than once, God told people to take off your shoes for the ground is holy. And the reason the ground is holy is because he was there. But so this idea of, of humility and humbling and, and covering myself because 
how can, and, and can't look, how can I look on God in all of this glory? And we see even more reason why. Verse three, these creatures. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. Now, can you feel a little anxiety coming on, right? If you were Isaiah, if you find yourself in this situation, that, whoa, you're seeing God high and lifted up and there's something about his train, his glorious, and these creatures and, and they're, they're crying out, holy, 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 whole earth is full of glory. And when they do, if the place shakes. How many of you would be concerned if I said something today and these beams kind of went I'd probably head out the door with you. <laughs> right? But so, and then the whole place was filled with smoke. And I don't know if it was a smoke you could smell or if it was just a smoke that was visible. But either way, this is a happening thing. Stuff is going on that Isaiah has never been exposed to before. He's seeing God in a way he has never seen him before. And so let's talk about what the seraphim are saying. The, the phrase, and they say, the whole earth is filled with his glory. This idea of glory is, it's, it's kind of hard to put into words, but it's, it's a, it communicates a weightiness, a very serious this kind of thing. And also a majestic thing and an awesome thing. He says the whole earth is full of his glory. And we say, well, what's that mean? Well, anybody seen one of those sunrises recently? Or for the rest of you, one of those sunsets? Have you seen those? Seen a flower? Watched anything or read anything or learned about how we're made and, and how the cells work and I mean, it's on and on it goes. If you want to take a little time, you probably could keep learning about seeing the glory of God in creation for a long time. It's there. He says, the whole earth is full of it. Everywhere I look, there's evidence for you. Everywhere I look, I can see that you're doing things, God. Okay? That's a big deal. This is the God I'm with. The God of the universe is the one he's face to face with here. But it's the first line. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the created beings, the Lord of the angels of heaven, the Lord of the warrior soldiers of heaven. That's who he's talking about. But he says, holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is an interesting grammar thing in Hebrew. How many of you like study grammar in school? Hey, actually, more than I might have thought, Okay. But grammar matters and how words are put together and how phrases, how does the language, you know, what's it used uh, for figures of speech and those kind of things. This isn't really a figure of speech. But if I want to talk about, we could talk about, hey, where do you buy your pizza for the Super Bowl? If you buy pizza for the Super Bowl, where do you buy it? Well, I could buy it from this place. They get pretty good pizza there. But you know what? Over here, it's a little farther away, but there's... That's better pizza. Oh, but you know, if I'm willing to drive about 30 minutes, the best pizza in the world. Good, better, best, right? Um, in the Hebrew language, they didn't talk that way. They would say, like this, uh, the, the good pizza, they'd go, mmm, pizza. 
And the place was a little farther away, and it's better pizza. They go, hmm, pizza, pizza. I'm not advertising Little Caesars there. Pizza, pizza. But that place, that's a half an hour you got to drive, pizza, pizza, pizza. All right, so they're talking about the holiness of God here, these beings. And so they say, holy. You think that might be sufficient, right? But it's not. He's holy, holy. No, not really. He's holy, holy, holy. You cannot get holier than that. That's what they're trying to communicate. And I um, had one of the members of our church one day tell me that, uh, 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 something he thought about. This is very interesting and insightful. So they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And they say it again and again and again. And we don't know when they started. I think they probably started at their creation. When we go to the book of Revelation, we're not going to look at that today, but in the book of Revelation, which is like, 800 years after this, guess what these beings are still doing? They're still around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy. But so what this, this one of our men told me, he says, you know what? I, he says, I think it's like every time they say it, then they see something and realize that he's even holier than that. And they'd say it again and again throughout all of history, created history. All right, so what do we learn about God from here? Come on, guys. He's holy. That's right. He's holy, holy, holy. He is the holiest of all holies. Anything and anywhere you want to try to think about it and talk about it, okay? And maybe in a little bit we'll see why that should be troubling. It was troubling to Isaiah. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament there, uh, Moses told God he wanted to see his face. And God said, no, nah, can't. No living human being could see my face and live. Now here Isaiah is seeing a vision of it. That's not, you know, quite the same thing. So he doesn't die, but, but he knows that he thinks I am in trouble. In fact, he's going to say that. Verse 5, Isaiah. So I said... Woe is me, for I am undone. I am in trouble, and there's no way to recover from this. I am in big trouble. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am sinful, and I'm seeing this Holy God, I am in trouble. There's no recovery is what he feels like. What's the idea of unclean lips? Just get a napkin, right? No, Jesus explained this, not this passage, but he explained it in the Gospels when he said, you know, they were worried about, well, should we eat this kind of food or that kind of food falling along? He says, no, look, he says, it's not what you eat and take in that makes you unclean. It's what comes out from your heart. And he says, out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. And so when Isaiah is saying, I am a man of unclean lips, and all of us, we got unclean lips, what's he recognizing? Our hearts aren't right with God. We have hearts that are not holy. We have hearts that are sinful. And we've acted on it, and it's come out 
in our lives. This is what he's saying. Now, you start to understand why he would be fearful, why he would be anxious, right? He's recognizing that I am sinful. I am anything but holy. And he is so holy, I'm in trouble. Okay? Big, big trouble. So let's read on. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Altar where God would be worshipped. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Now, I, um, you, know, you try to imagine this and the idea of someone putting a hot coal on your lips sounds very painful, doesn't it? And so I don't, it doesn't say anything about Isaiah feeling pain or anything kind of this stuff. But the idea is this. With the, with the fire, you can purge something. You can kill you can kill the bacteria the bad stuff right and so they use fire and even heat to do those kinds of things so I think this idea but he says I have purged you I have cleansed you from that sin from those iniquities Isaiah has this acute awareness of his sinfulness and God says yeah I know and then he cleans him up from it maybe there's hope okay So Isaiah's experiencing all this, everything that's going on, how he's feeling about it, trying to make sense of it, and now he knows his sin for holy God, and then God has cleansed him and forgiven him. And then verse 8, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. All of this has brought Isaiah to the point, place where he's saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live? Lord, just tell me. And Isaiah's life is forever changed, isn't it? Forever changed by coming to grips with God being a holy God and him a sinner, and then God's rescuing him from that. And so we see four things real quick in this passage. First one is God is holy. No doubt about that from this passage, right? God is holy. The second thing is we are not naturally holy. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about it when he's trying to encourage us about living by faith. And he says this. He says, okay, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, okay, we're going to go forward. What you need to do is you need to set aside the weights, the things that are weighing you down, and set aside the sin which so easily besets you. Is that true? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that, you know, you go through the day and all of a sudden something happens and change your thinking, this thing, next you know, I'm not saying the right thing, I'm not doing the right thing, I'm not doing it the right way, I'm, I'm, I've sinned. How did that happen? I didn't wake up and say today, I want to sin. Right? We don't do that. That's, there's the nature there that, that controls us. And we'll talk a little more about that in a little bit too. But we are not naturally holy. We aren't. Third thing, God can make us holy. And that is good, good news. And then, the fourth thing, we see that God's holiness should change our lives. Should change our lives. So let's work through this some today. What does this word holy mean? Well, in the Hebrew language, it means to be clean. 
Or you talk about a sacred place or thing, something they might use in the worship of God. The Greek word means pure, morally blameless. Okay, so we're not, we're no sin here. Uh, English language, this word holy, spiritually perfect or pure, untainted by evil or sin, sinless, sacred. So all, I mean, I don't know what you thought of holy. You might have thought, depending where you grew up, holy is some way that church seems, right? And, and I understand that. But really what we're talking about is no sin and a positive goodness beyond no sin. You know, if, if uh, I ask you today, are you sick? It's in a real conversation, are, are you sick? And you think, no, I'm not sick. I said, okay. Are you healthy? No, I don't think I'm healthy either. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? You're not sick, but you don't necessarily think you're healthy. When it comes to God and this holiness, the idea when it comes to sin, no sin. Nope, no sin. But it's something more than that. Yes, he is healthy on the righteousness side. Does that make sense? Did you follow that? Okay. So that's how God is when it comes to sin. Uh, Godquestions.org, which I usually take a quick look at when I'm studying, says this. God's holiness means that he is set apart from mankind, that he is something other than we are in a radical and fundamental way. He is perfection without a hint of unrighteousness. And so this word holy does communicate also an idea of being set apart. Set apart, if it was us, set apart from the world for God. Okay, we're not gonna serve the world or go the world's way, we're going with God. We've been set apart, we are holy. And God is set apart naturally from us in this way. It talks about not making sense, it will make sense of the other things. If God is omnipotent, it means he can do whatever he chooses to do, correct? Could he choose to do bad, just on that basis? Just on being omnipotent? I'm not trying to trick you here. I'm just trying to say is that just being omnipotent doesn't make you good. No, he's good because he's what? Holy. His omnipotence. Wow, now we know what his omnipotence is for. How about his omniscience? He knows everything. But he knows everything in a way that leads to good. Holiness. He's present everywhere. Why? Because he's good. Because it's holy. And we so start to see that holiness is the, the overarching or maybe we could say undergirding uh, characteristic of God. That he is holy. Totally untainted with sin. The quote continues. It says, before anything else. Go ahead. Before anything else about God makes sense, we must understand that God is holy. Without recognizing this uniqueness, none of his other qualities make sense, okay? So let's, let's do some practical thinking now about, so we have this theology. Holiness is, you know, a theological idea and all that. What does it mean in practical ways for us in life? Well, the first thing is this, that God is holier than we can fully comprehend. Do you think when Isaiah was done with this, he, he walked out saying, wow, I now know everything about God, no, if nothing else, this holiness, realizing he'd never understood this as well as he does now, makes him realize there's probably more, isn't there? Okay? He's holier than we can fully comprehend. We can say the words, but it's really hard to get it because we've, all, we've always lived in a world with sin. All right? Uh, Exodus chapter 15, Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, glorious and holiness, fearful and praises, doing wonders, trying to, to grasp the holiness of God, okay? Second thing, God has no sin at all, no desire to sin, and a positive righteousness away from sin. I already talked about that a little bit. In James chapter one, he says this, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He isn't drawn. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. See, it's just not a part of who he is, okay? The third thing is that God's holiness does not allow him to accept sin. Because he is so holy, he cannot just accept sin. Uh, Habakkuk chapter one says, you are, of talking to God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Now, are you starting to worry yet? Think about this. He's not going to accept sin. Can't accept sin. Not even going to look upon it, this idea of looking on it. and No big deal. Oh, no. He's holy, holy, holy. And so it, it does start to make sense. Well, wait a minute. So where are we at in this picture? Where do we fit? Well, here's the fourth thing. We must be holy if we expect to have a relationship with a holy God. We gotta be holy. Okay, that's kind of overwhelming. That's the reason for the big exclamation point. So we need to be holy in all of our conduct. Peter, writing in his first letter, says this. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And I'm not gonna try to explain the whole figure of speech there. Just the idea is he said, get your head together. Okay, come on, let's focus, focus. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, which means to be serious, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, okay? Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. You can't go back and just live the way you used to live in sin when you didn't understand what was going on. And he says this, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in, read the next three words out loud with, out loud with me, ready? All your conduct. Oops. You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's what God is saying to us as his people. And then it isn't just this idea of the specific conduct. It's, it's even in our being and how we approach life. The apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter 12 says this. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And a lot of you know these verses. But by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Next word, Holy acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. And he's talking about presenting our body. It's like the lips represent the heart. Our whole body represents our whole being, okay? He's saying, give yourself to me. Surrender yourself to me complete as a holy person. Holy. And he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or determine what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we are holy, that we are good, we can make the acceptable choices, the right choices, the perfect things. Do things God. It's talking about being holy in our whole being. And it really matters because in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 12. He says, pursue peace with all people. And he says this, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Wow, I gotta be holy to see God. You have to be holy to see God. 
And when life comes to an end, you've got to be holy or you're not going to see God in the way that you want to, for sure. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation now and see where this leads us as human beings. God is saying we have to be holy. And we look at our lives and we say, yes, but we aren't holy. Too many things in my life don't match what God says. I've sinned against him multiple, multiple times and I'm bound to do it again. Where does this lead us? Revelation 20, verse 11. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Obviously, this is God. And, and white communicating what? Purity. Holiness. And God on the throne. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place. And what's this mean? It fled away. Well, the idea is this. This is a judgment. This is where the judgment, this final judgment, is going to occur. And nobody wants to be at this judgment. I've had, um, I guess you call it an opportunity or whatever, to be in court with people who are, have been on trial and I've watched them be found guilty and then I've watched them have to stand up for the judge as he passes the sentence on them. And it's amazing. I, men who are very strong men who not really emotional, at least you can't tell, stand up there and you can see their hands shaking. They would rather be any place else but there if they could not be standing there at that moment having their sentence read to them. This is what's gonna happen at this throne. And it says heaven and earth fled away. Nobody wants to be there. But guess what? You don't have a choice. You can't get away. That's what he's gonna tell us here. And he says, and I saw the dead Small and great, and he's not talking about size so much as he's talking about famous and ones nobody knew. Everybody, in other words. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, the, the place of the dead, delivered up the dead who were in them. The idea is wherever they're coming from, they've all come here. They've all made it to this judgment. And again, he says, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Didn't we just read that? Didn't he just say that in verse 12? They were judged, each one according to their works? If God says something once in the scriptures, a statement of fact, is it true? Thank you, yeah. Absolutely true. If he says it twice in the Bible, wow, we better pay attention. What if he says it twice in two verses? I think he wants us to understand this. He wants us to get it. What's gonna happen is that anybody who stands at this judgment will be based, uh, 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 that judgment will be based on their works. The works mean how they live their life, what they did how they did it, why they did it, right? Which includes, here's what it includes, and this is the problem. 
You stand before the judge here. He says, let's look at your life. And the books are open. We go through your life. Sin. Sin. Sin, 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 sin. Sin, sin, sin. How many pages do we got to go through before it's pretty much settled? Not holy. Can't be with me. Tough place to be. I don't want to have to stand for God and be judged on the basis of my works. And if I want to compare myself to a lot of people, I do pretty good. But compared to God and his standards, I've fallen short, as we all have. So we're in trouble. So let's continue reading here. Then death and Hades, that's where the place where these people came from, death, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, this, this is what we, we commonly use the word, and we maybe not totally accurately, but this is what we mean when we talk about hell, isn't it? Okay, this is what we're thinking. This is the second death. They died physically. Now they're going to have a spiritual death that lasts for all eternity. It's a, if you and I stand at this judgment, we are hurting, aren't we? What's our destiny if we stand at this judgment and are judged on the basis of our works? What's it say? The lake of fire. Hell. That is the destiny if we stand before God and he judges us on the basis of our works. Do we get that? Doesn't matter how you did compared to anybody else. It's only how you did compared to what God requires in this area of holiness. And then it says this in verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so the sense is this, that here's, here's the books. All, and this may be symbolic. It represents the fact that God knows everything. Okay, but we're just talking about his books. So here's the books. We've gone through. Okay, guilty, 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 guilty. You are guilty. Now let's see if your name is in the book of life. Nope, not in the book of life. You're lost for all eternity. Hmm. I want to know how do I get my name in that book of life? Because it sounds like if you're in the book of life, you aren't lost. And so what we see here, and we're going to talk about it, but God has provided a way for us to have his perfect holiness. When we find ourselves in the book of life, it's about accepting Christ as Savior. We who are spiritually dead, going our own way, doing our own thing. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world and dies and pays the penalty for that. And it's like there's a balance, a payment, an account waiting for you to accept. He says, if you'll believe, if you'll just put your faith and trust in me and follow me, right? Turn away from your own ways. Turn away from the world and how it tries to do things. That's how you end up at the great white throne judgment. Turn away from that. Turn to me. Put your faith and trust in me. And then this account pays in full the penalty that is owed by you. And it's better than that, actually. But that's how we receive eternal life. And it's... It's like it's that moment that we get our names written in the book of life. And the good news is, is that if your name is in the book of life, you never make this judgment we're looking at. We talked about it last week a little bit. That's the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to talk about that next week. 
All right, so God has provided a way for us to have his perfect holiness. Paul wrote about it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said, for he made him, talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness and holiness, those kinds of things, they're connected, aren't they? That we might he would make us holy, that we could have his righteousness. In fact, the way he talks about it here is even more. He says he became sin. We become righteous. And so this is how he provides for us. When we receive Christ, so many of you here, you know, probably at some point along the way, prayed with me here to receive Jesus as Savior. And you understood it. And you got it. But I'm not sure that you really got it all. I, I mean, not the getting saved part. I mean that you understood what Jesus really did for you. And what this means. You know, holiness, as we've looked at so far, is a pretty heavy, scary thing, isn't it? You think about it. And how in the world can I be holy? And I, you know, it's... it's I hope nobody has an anxiety attack or a panic attack, right? You don't need to because there's a way out. So God has provided a way. He did it by Jesus coming and dying. So when we receive Christ, his righteousness is credited to our account. And from now on, when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous and as holy. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't see the sin or know the son. He's talking about who we really are because here's what happens. We as human beings, we are... Like I think, I believe based on scripture says we are three major parts to us. There is our spirit, that we are spiritual beings and that's the deep down inside part of us at the core of who we are. It's who our identity is. It's what our true nature is. And before we receive Christ as Savior, we are spiritually dead. That's what happened when Adam sinned against God. Human beings became spiritually dead. And we're, that means deep down inside we are about self. We come first. We are selfish then. I mean, all these kinds of things, and this is why we have chosen to sin. So that nature then affects our soul, which is our mind, how we think, it's our, our emotions, how we feel, it's our will, how we choose and what we choose to do. That's that soul part of us. And then there's the body. We get it, right? Here's the body. This is what we live in, in which we live out the desires uh, that we have. But when we receive Jesus as Savior, when we are born again, as the Bible talks about, that happens deep down in our spirit, the core of our being, who we really are. And this is where we used to be unholy, ungodly, unrighteous. This is where he has now changed us deep down inside to where we are holy. We are righteous. We're like Jesus. Deep down inside. And the problem is it's deep down inside. And needs to work its way out. It needs to work. We need to learn to think different ways. Right? And aren't we all working on that? We need to learn to feel differently about things. We need to learn to make different choices about it. But because he's changed us deep down inside, that is possible. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. And one of the things we celebrate is that he has freed us from the controlling power of sin. How do you do that? See, before you were saved, all you had was this self-centered, selfish nature. That's all you had. It affected everything else. And you might have learned to act different on the outside because of the way the world acts and what they expected. But deep down inside, you weren't changed. You needed to be changed. But then when he changes us, we can live differently. We can grow. We can become more like Jesus. Think more like him. Act more like him.
because it's his nature that now is there because God himself lives inside of us. So not only does this get us eternal life and the total forgiveness, it also provides a way for us to live differently, which is what I've really just been talking about. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what I'm just describing. Deep down inside, in your spirit, who you are, God moved in, nothing's ever the same. Okay? But it's better than that. When I'm talking about it working its way out into our lives, sometimes that seems hard for us, doesn't it? We get stuck somewhere or over what, but it's there and it's happening. Apostle Paul, talking to the Thessalonians, he, as he's concluding his writing to them, he says this to them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This word sanctified, guess what the root word of that is? Holy. Holiness. He's going to make you holy. But sanctify you how much? What's it say? Completely. He's going to sanctify you. He's at work in this. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. There's another word that connects with holiness. Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all going to be done, completed when he returns for us. Or we go to be with him. And then he says these words which are so, I don't even know how to, just so, so good. He says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. When you say yes to him, receive him, when you say yes to him and surrender to him in life and you do these things, he will work in you. He's faithful. He's going to do what he said. He's going to change you from the inside out. And it's a good thing. And so I think another way to talk about holiness is God's perfect goodness. His perfect goodness and his goodness extends to us and what he's done for us and what he's going to do. And what we ran from before we came to Christ, his holiness, what we ran from, we now find to be such a blessing. Holiness. It's, it's Isaiah in the temple, all of a sudden it's not scary. I mean, God's still kind of scary. But <laughs> it's not scary anymore. Holiness is good. I like this. I want this. John Eldridge, uh, probably best known for writing the book Wild at Heart, but said this. He says, whatever holiness truly is, the effect of it is healing. That's what it does to a person. Holy, because you know, it was sins like a terrible disease that just ravages you. It's like the worst cancer you can imagine that never lets go. That's what sin is like. Holiness takes that away. And begins to restore us to what God intended for us to be. That's good. So good. Whatever holiness truly is, the effect of it is healing. That's what it does to a person. Genuine holiness restores human beings. Restored human beings possess genuine holiness. Look, let's go on there. He says, uh, whole and holy. And I don't know if you noticed that's actually in the title of the sermon. Whole and holy. This is your destiny. Once the truth of it seizes you, you'll run around the house whipping at the sheer promise. Anybody want to stand up and do that? Woo! Run around the house. 
I used to have a dog, and it would, for the sheer joy of it, it would just run around the house as fast as it could, sliding across the kitchen floor, banging into things. Didn't matter. This is so good. And that's the way when you really start to understand what you've got and what God is doing. Where he's telling you, you will be wholly blown away by the holiness of God. But you've got to respond. You've got you to come to Jesus. You have to accept Jesus as Savior to have it, or you're still on your own. We've talked about it. It should be clear to you. You've got to say, okay, God, that's me. I need that. I trust Jesus. And if you're a Christian, believe that God's holiness, holy ways are best for you. They are what you really want. They are what's going to make your life worth living and excited to live. And is that enough? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful and alive and it speaks to us. I'm confident that you've kept your promise and have spoken to us here today. We've, many of us probably heard different things in the details, Lord, but thank you that you are so holy. Thank you that you will not accept sin because it's just destroying us. Thank you that when we give in and, and put our faith in you, that you begin restoring us. You take away that ugliness of sin and begin restoring us and making us whole through your holiness. Help us to believe it. Help us not to forget it. Help us to live by it, moment by moment, day by day. That we might honor and glorify you, the most holy, holy, holy God. We pray in Jesus' name.